conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I am joined today by a brand new guest, Richard Newby. Richard, you have been on my other podcast, Chat Cemetery, so thank you for venturing over to the more pop culture all around and maybe slightly less horror side of things. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Of course. And today we are talking all about Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, which is also known as the saga of the Swamp Thing. And this was one that had been on my list for a while. And I've been wanting to do more comic book episodes, but I guess I just didn't realize quite how long his (laughs) run is because it's 45 issues technically i will admit right up front here that i did skip issue 46 i want to say it was because that is a crossover with crisis on infinite earths which i have that sitting in my to read list you know in dc universe as well have not read it just yet so i was like you know what maybe i'm just gonna skip this one (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh it's quite it's quite the long expansive run i uh I have like the the graphic novel set, the six volume graphic novel set uh, in uh, hand right now. Yeah, it's one of those things where I love buying physical comics, but Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe are just so convenient because I'm out of shelf space. <laughs> but I'm glad you wanted to discuss this one because I know Alan Moore is someone who has been discussed time and time again in comics and his run happening in sort of, you know, the mid 80s, you do get a comic that feels very, very long, because this was a time period where they were still doing a ton of narration with the comics. And instead of just showing you, sometimes they were showing you and telling you what was happening. And it felt like it was very tiresome at times. Do you ever feel that way with comics from this era? Yeah, I do. It definitely, you know, like with with modern comics, I can, you know, tear through an entire graphic novel or run, you know, in just like a few hours. But yeah, with these these older ones, like they definitely are a lot more time consuming. It's almost it almost feels like reading a, a novel in some cases. Right. And I was going to try and read this in sort of two or three chunks at a time. I tried, failed miserably because I would get, you know, six or seven issues in in a day. And then I was like, I need a break. You know, it's not that I don't enjoy the comics from this era. It's just that they wear me down a little more. And sometimes since I do a Stephen King podcast, I just want to read things that don't have a ton of words. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I had to read Swamp Thing when I was not reading a Stephen King book to sort of balance things out and make sure I wasn't trying to do too much at once as far as, you know, trying to get some reading done goes. And I want to talk about this first as a whole, because the way it starts is with Alan Moore tying up some loose ends, and you literally have, you know, an issue titled Loose Ends, and then you have, I think, the Loose Ends reprise towards the end of his run as well. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he picks up off of the... Uh, I, um, you know, I... He picks up off of the, the Martin Pasco and uh, Dan Mishkin run, which I actually, like, did not read... Uh, 
ahead of time. So when I started Swamp Thing, I started with uh, Lynn Wine and Bernie Wrightson's uh, original arc. And then from there, I would jump straight into to Alan Moore. So it's kind of interesting to read that that first uh, Loose Ends issue and just kind of be introduced to these new characters who, you know, just disappear after a couple of a couple of issues. Right. And a lot of characters come and go throughout Moore's run. And I feel like I maybe should have read some more of the Len and Bernie stuff beforehand because I am familiar with Bernie Wrightson's artwork because he's done stuff for Stephen King. He did, you know, I'm pretty sure he did Cycle of the Werewolf and then he did some of the drawings that appear in quite a few of the Dark Tower books. So I'm familiar with his work and he has that great horror element to his art And because Alan Moore's run was so long, I felt like the art wasn't always consistent. There were some times where Abby just looked completely like a cartoon animated character almost because there was like a fill-in artist here and there. And I think this was at its best when it was Moore and Stephen Bissett. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, He's, he's my favorite artist to do Swamp Thing in this run as well. Uh, Stephen Bissett, I think that he really sets the standard, I think, um, of what, you know, Moore is is trying to do visually with his run on Swamp Thing. I I do like the other um, artists like John Totalden and uh, Rich uh, Veach. Yeah. Uh, But I definitely think that um, I think that Bissett just really nails the whole uh, the whole mood and kind of like the the southern gothic feel of the book that uh, Moore really kind of starts his his whole saga off with. And I do want to note that I did read the Pasco and Michigan issues prior to this, and that's why it took me so long to get into this too, because I was trying to read those first you know nineteen issues at some point as well. And eventually, I was getting close enough to Moore's run where I kind of skimmed through it just so I wouldn't really miss any big points. And, you know, like you said, you were a little confused. And I was just like, all right, I know his first issue kind of wraps up everything that came before. So I don't want to read that and be very confused right off the bat. But thankfully, you know, it's that one issue. And then you go straight into Moore's version of Swamp Thing. And this is the version of Swamp Thing that I think the majority of people immediately think of when You're talking about the character even when DC Universe recently did the Swamp Thing show, which I believe has already aired on the CW now or is still airing on the CW, something along those lines. And you really understand his impact on this character in particular. And, you know, that's not even counting other things he did like V for Vendetta and Watchmen, which Moore's comics do have their problems, but I don't think that any of those problems should just automatically discount all of the work he's done over the years that has had a positive impact on comics, other creators, DC in particular, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, especially when you look at, you know, this, this run on Swamp Thing, and this was kind of like his, his major breakthrough in the mainstream comics, but like so much of DC of like what it, what we associate with, you know, that publication like comes from from this run. Like Vertigo 
uh, was created like out of Swamp Thing. So like, you know, Neil Gaiman's uh, uh, Sandman uh, came from this and uh, Hellblazer with John Constantine and, you know, uh, Grant Morrison, uh, their introduction to uh, American readers. And so he really, he started, you know, this whole, not only this like kind of British invasion of, of American comics, but also just like kind of redefined, you know, what comics could be for an older audience. You know, and this was the first saga of Swamp Thing was the first DC comic to abandon the, the comics code uh, authority. Uh, and he really, he really pushed a lot of boundaries in terms of what uh, DC was able to publish. And I think that's something that has really like stuck around, you know, through the brand, uh, you know, even, even into, you know, present day into the 21st century and what we're seeing with presently with black label and, you know, the, the kind of darker territory that uh, DC writers are allowed to explore. Like a lot of that can be attributed to what Moore did here. And I understand why DC has always wanted that line to be sort of separate from their main line. It's not that, you know, the main Batman comics don't get dark at times because that's the nature of the character. But the stories that they've told through Vertigo and now Black Label, they've been much more mature in a sense. And you definitely don't want, you know someone thinking it's just a general DC comic that is part of their sort of main continuity. And what Moore does well here, too, is he brings in these characters that we're familiar with, but he doesn't overuse them. You know, when Batman appears in this comic, it's not like Batman takes over the entire issue or every single sort of scene that we get in those particular issues. Same with Dead Man. You have Jason Blood also as Etrigan. Yeah. I'm really bad with pronouncing names, but I'm <laughs> always like, you know, I know these characters and I should learn how to pronounce their names one day. But I think when it comes down to it, Constantine is really the guest star in a sense of Moore's run because both Constantine and Swamp Thing are outsiders in their own unique ways, not necessarily in the way that Batman kind of seems like the outsider of the Justice League almost, but in a sense that they're not really wanted around by a lot of people. Yeah, they're they're kind of they're you know a little bit like social pariahs and at the same time they're they're heroic but not superheroes. They don't really fit into the mold of of what a of what a superhero is, um, and so I feel like that that you know story that sees them you know through I think seventeen issues of Swamp Thing and, and Constantine together. It's it's interesting because it's kind of like the inverse of the classic you know superhero team up, where you have these two guys and neither one of them are really uh, super heroic and neither one of them are particularly well liked and they don't even particularly like each other, but they're just kind of like thrust into the situation together. It's kind of this like weird, supernatural, like uh, buddy cop story in a way. It really is. And as someone who enjoys Constantine as a character, it was a welcome addition to the story that was being told. And it also took Swamp Thing out of his comfort zone quite a bit and you see Constantine sort of not 
giving him the whole truth, which is not surprising when it comes to Constantine. He's a character who likes to play things close to the vest and only tell people things when it's absolutely necessary. And he even points out that Swamp Thing is sort of like the child in the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I I think that, you know, there's a reason why Constantine, like, emerged as such a popular character from this, you know, with the 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 Hellblazer series that that Vertigo did following his appearances in Swamp Thing like more creates like such a strong presence with this character and like such a sense of history so even the fact that like you know he's a new character in this like it's he's so easy to to gravitate towards because I think that he he just has such an interesting perspective and lens on uh, on the world and also just like lens on the DC universe that I think was very different from what readers were seeing at the time. Well, at times too, this really feels a lot more like a horror comic than a superhero comic. And I think that's a style that worked well for a lot of the artists who appeared on this run. And you have it starting off too, with this sort of big story in the anatomy lesson which is issue 21 where the floronic man also known as jason woodrow performs an autopsy on swamp thing and it's like they hit you so hard with that not first issue technically but it really is the true first issue of moore's run in my opinion and it just sets the tone for the rest of it and you almost never really know what to expect. There were definitely some ups and downs throughout the 40 plus issues. But I think for the most part, you know, at the time, Alan Moore wasn't as well known as we now know him to be. So this was a big risk. And I love that DC was willing to take that chance because the comic was about to be canceled. So they were like, all right, just you do your thing. We're going to give you sort of free reign of this comic and see what you can do. And obviously, he did enough to get 40 plus issues, which even today, that's something that's still very hard to do. A lot of things reboot or have new writers come in before you even hit 40 issues sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Um, The fact that he was able to to stay in it that long and tell like a, a consistent story is is pretty significant. Um, and yeah, just like going back to like this idea of like the, the anatomy lesson, just reviving the character. Um, it's, it's really interesting because if you go back and you look at the, the Lynn Wien and, and uh, Bernie Wrightson run, you know, it's so much of it is based on Swamp Thing trying to uh, turn back into Alec Holland. I mean, that is, the, the central like thesis of, of Swamp Thing. Like he encounters, you know, various monsters and such along the way, but his sole drive is to become Alec Holland once again. And so with more taking that away with the anatomy lesson, it just gave an entirely new purpose to Swamp Thing. And it's like, well, you know, since I don't have this option to become a man anymore, what do I become? And so it's this whole struggle with humanity and also like finding his larger purpose his his godhood really in a sense as he you know connects to to the green and encounters the parliament of trees so it just really completely reimagined the character uh in a way that i think that we we rarely see 
with, with comic book characters. I mean, we, we definitely see, you know, tweaks and we see, you know, reboots and especially with DC and their, their, their crises, but you know, it's, it's never been such a, a significant just rewriting of the origin and the essence of the character as what, what more did here. Right. And there are certain issues where I think he's obviously trying to try something new. Like, for instance, in issue 32, the Pog issue, oh, yeah. it was so wild to get that in the midst of this run because, you know, by now you're hitting the what 13th issue of Moore's run and he's just hitting you with this issue that isn't nearly as serious as the rest have been so far and you can't help but laugh when you read this one and there are moments not only in this issue but in other issues as well where he will have characters speaking in other languages and you just have absolutely no idea what's being said and I think that's interesting because then you do have to rely on the art to get the story across. And the Pog issue was kind of a nice little breather, too. There are a few times where you get these sort of little breathers and you're like, okay, this is sort of not a reset, but a shift in the story. Yeah, definitely. I think especially like uh, coming after the uh, Matt Cable and the Anton Ar- uh, Arcane yeah. arc with Abby. I mean, that's that's an incredibly dark and heavy arc. Like it's it's exhausting. Like I remember feeling exhausted reading that arc. Um, and so yeah, to have Paul come after that was definitely a nice little uh, refresher. Did you end up reading the Swamp Thing Annual Number Two by chance as well? I did. Yeah. Okay. It was very interesting how you could see these influences coming into play with Moore's run because there's, you know, this sort of Dante's Inferno vibe going on in the annual. And this is where we get more of Dead Man, the Phantom Stranger, the Spectre, and Etrigan. And I really feel like when it it leans more towards, like, the horror elements was when this series really was... I don't want to say more interesting, but it was just more in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I, I I feel the same way. Like the the horror stuff is definitely my favorite. Like the him meeting with the other the other supernatural uh, heroes, and then the the American Gothic uh, saga. You know, those are those are the high points for me uh, in his series. Like I, I like some of the the science fiction stuff in his later run. But I've always been more interested in in the horror elements uh, of Swamp Thing, and and seeing him, you know, interact with these other characters like Dead Man and Phantom Stranger is just like it was just such a neat thing because before more, uh, you know, brought them back for Swamp Thing, like a lot of these characters like had not been used very often in DC Comics and had kind of like fallen by the wayside, you know, in the same way that that Swamp Thing and Constantine are outsiders. These characters that kind of become outsiders in, in terms of DC's, you know, publication. And I think that seeing them all together just created a really interesting uh, interaction. And I think, like, we're still seeing the payoff of that, you know, today, like with um, James Tinney and the Fourth's uh, Justice League Dark series. I mean, it's picking up so many of the seeds uh, from 
this annual, the second annual, um, and, you know, uh, his encounter with uh, uh, Zatara, Zatanna's father, and, you know, going to, to hell, you know, so many of those things are, are still kind of playing out in comics. So I, I just, I love going back and seeing all the things that, that more set up with this run. And uh, I mean, with, with more being more, of course, he would probably uh, not be pleased <laughs> that people are, are following up on his, his, you know, story ideas. But I, I do feel like that's the, that's the nature of comics. So just like, you know, appreciating this run in the context of like some of these modern stories that are playing out uh, in DC comics is just really interesting. Especially since Moore doesn't really have a say in how DC comics, you know, uses any ideas because all of their work is work for hire for the most part. There might be a few things that creators came up with that ended up on Vertigo. You know, for instance, why the last man is very much not rooted in DC comics lore. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Books like that um, definitely like stand apart. And I do think that, you know, some characters like, like Sandman, you know, will always be, you know, I think that Neil Gaiman like always gets to weigh in on how the, how the character is used um, Morpheus and then, and then Daniel. And I think that, you know, DC overall has been pretty respectful in terms of that, but you know, Moore really hasn't. He's detached himself from comics, and so you know, there's really <laughs> there's really nothing that can be can be done in terms of like getting his his guidance or, or approval because he's basically like taken himself out of out of the picture. Um, right. But I think that you know, all of these great elements, I definitely think that they they deserve to be used, and I'm glad that they're still being they're still being used today. Like, I think that that's one of the, the things that has made this whole saga of swamp thing have such a lasting appeal. Um, you know, not only on the title after, after more left, but again, just like with the comics happening today, I think that there are so many elements that are introduced within this run that are just so fascinating. And I'm glad that creators are still getting a chance to kind of, uh, play with those ideas. You even see how it influenced the, season of the tv show as well which i'm bummed we are not going to be getting more of at least as it stands right now but i really felt like with the show and the way that dc universe was leaning with their originals they were definitely going a little darker than they do for instance on the cw shows and i personally enjoy that a lot so to see now where a lot of the influences in that show came from specifically it makes a lot more sense you know and all of the stuff that he did with the arcane family in his run it was very you know spooky and demonic and you really just wanted to kind of live in that world a little longer than we got to because for me it's not that i didn't care for the love story at all it's just it didn't feel like the high points of his run. Yeah. And maybe he's just not the guy to write a love story. <laughs> That's true too. I really, I really like Abby as a character. Um, and I, I definitely, I love this, this history, um, this family history that she has uh, with her, her uncle Anton and his kind of like sorcery and demonic nature. Um, and I think, you know, Abby has really evolved in the comics over the years. Um 
you know, more recently she's become like the, the avatar of, of the rot of death. Um, and so like, she's kind of like coming to her own, you know, separate power, uh, that kind of like stands against what Swamp Thing, you know, represents, but they also still have this love story. So I definitely think that she's evolved from kind of this like, uh, naive, like innocent maiden that she's presented as here. Um, but I, I, I very much enjoy the kind of evolution of, of her character. And I think really like that's the, that's the thing that I love so much about comic books in general is just being able to see these characters evolve over time. Um, and so as someone who I was introduced to, to Swamp Thing, I think during the, the brightest, brightest day run, um, of, uh, that Jeff Johns wrote, uh, following the blackest night, uh, green lantern series and Swamp mm-hmm. Thing was, uh, resurrected in that, um, along with Abby. And so that was kind of my, my comic book introduction to the character. I had seen, uh, Wes Craven's movie, uh, a long time ago when I was a kid, but just, you know, reading that comic and then being able to go back and read Moore's run and see where these characters began and where they are now. I just think that that's such a, a cool, uh, interesting thing that, that only happens in comic books. Right. I also want to specifically ask you about the hallucinogenic issues, basically, because <laughs> it only pops up a handful of times, I would say, throughout the entire run. And it's not necessarily that I want to talk about any specific issue, but just the fact that you can have these things produced by Swamp Thing that basically come off of his body and they're called tubers. Yeah. (laughs) And then it just puts whoever eats them in this hallucinogenic state and it gets very psychedelic. And because this is the mid 80s, it feels like this is kind of harkening back to a time period during the 60s or 70s, which would be, you know, when Alan Moore was slightly younger, you know, and you have the character Chester, I believe his name is, yeah. too, who is kind of like the drug guy and he's like the hippie looking guy. Yeah. What did you think of how that all played into the run in general? It's super weird. I... <laughs> I remember okay, like it's not just time, me. <laughs> yeah, the first time reading that, it's just it, it's it's such a weird thing. Like I I I admire its weirdness, uh, <laughs> and I think it's interesting that uh, Swamp Thing and Abby are able to connect on that level. But it's just like it's it's one of those things where I just like I <laughs> cannot like wrap my head around like how you know he came to that idea, and I feel like that whole hallucinogenic issue uh i feel like that you can clearly see the the influence that had on on grant morrison uh later with his his psychedelic comics but yeah it's just it's such a weird element of the mythology yeah i was kind of hoping i wouldn't be the only one who was like this is kind of weird and i think it's something that didn't really get touched on in the show. I don't know about the future Swamp Thing comics in particular and how much that really played a part, but the introduction of that in Moore's run, because we don't really see that at any point before his run. It's more along the lines of, you know, 
this guy comes to Chester and is like, hey, my wife needs help too. And she eats it and then she's feeling fantastic, even though she shouldn't be walking around. And that whole thing, I was like, okay, so is this just to let us understand that it isn't only Abby that these tubers affect this way? Yeah, I think so. Um, If I remember correctly, I don't think that those are used again after Moore's run. I don't remember like any of the more contemporary Swamp Thing books using those tubers. Okay. So it's weird, yeah, because it's just like kind of this like isolated Alan Moore thing that is, is super weird. And then I feel like other writers were like, wow, this is this is really weird. I'm probably just like not going to touch that. <laughs> and then you have the guy who kind of loses his mind and thinks he's on fire. So it affects different people in different ways, depending on, you know, who they are deep down as a person, whether or not they're a good or bad person. And it almost feels like they should have used that to their advantage a little more throughout this run, because... I feel like Swamp Thing, you know, even just giving someone a little bit of it would have been able to kind of tell the good people from the bad people a little more easily. And it almost felt like it was a tool that wasn't really used as a tool. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I I think that there are some definite like uh, other capabilities that that he had in terms of of terms of using those uh, that they just like didn't touch on and so it's like kind of one of these like in a way like it's kind of one of these like lost uh these lost powers of swamp thing kind of like how you know superman had some of these like really odd you know powers during the during the 40s and 50s uh swamp things tubers have become this like weird lost power that like no one has really touched on again but i do think that you're right i think that they could be used in some interesting ways in terms of like determining the morality of, of certain people or allowing them to bring out their their true natures. Yeah, it was almost like a storyline that didn't really have any huge impact, but for some reason more really wanted you to know about these things. And <laughs> so that was a little disappointing there. But one of the other big moments I really want to discuss here is Swamp Thing going to space. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah, and I wasn't really sure how I felt about it when it first happened, but then it brings in Adam Strange, who I feel like is a character we don't see pop up in a ton of comics. You have sort of these, I don't really want to call them B-list characters because they are enjoyable in their own right. And you see things like, you know, Mr. Miracle making a comeback with Tom King's run. You have Strange Adventures that's out currently too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely like a, a lesser known uh, character. But yeah, I think that it's interesting that more kind of like drifted away from the, the horror stuff and went into science fiction and so like in the same way that he kind of like brought back some of the like less popular supernatural characters like phantom stranger and etrigan he you know brings back uh adam strange and so yeah it's really interesting like how how it's used uh in this book and i i think that the whole like concept of swamp thing going to space it's kind of like this extension of you know 
who he is as the avatar of the green. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, going from, you know, something as, you know, it, it's central to Louisiana at first and then it broadens to America and then it's the world and then it's the, the whole universe. I think that that is an incredibly interesting uh, concept and it's very much like kind of uh, in line with Moore's, you know, focus on man, you know, kind of losing touch with humanity and finding their own godhood. Uh, in some ways, like it kind of mirrors uh, what he did with, with Dr. Manhattan uh, in Watchmen. And I think that um, the the science fiction issues, the space issues of Swamp Thing, I'm pretty sure that those came right around the same time that Watchmen was being published. Okay, that's very interesting then. I didn't catch on to that. But it was a little bit of an abrupt change for me because I think what would have worked best in my humble opinion here is if he did a story from start to finish that was more rooted in horror and then did a story start to finish that was rooted in science fiction. But the fact that these two are connected, it felt like you start in this one very specific kind of place and then you end up in well space you know you don't end end there but swamp thing ends up in space with you know one issue left in the run or two issues left in the run and you're like wait how did we get here (laughs) it's kind of this wild ride that like i said earlier has its ups and downs but i think the science fiction element worked because Swamp Thing has this connection, like you said, with the green, and he wants to just have nature all around him all the time. And you see that in the Gotham issues, when Abby goes to Gotham, and then she's sort of awaiting her extradition. And Swamp Thing is like, I am going to make your town so green, you are going to let her go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I I think that it's really interesting, especially in the, the, the My Blue Heaven issue, which is uh, number 56. You know, I think that him creating other life is just like a, another like really interesting aspect to his character, not only like in terms of him dealing with like his own like loneliness and isolation, but just like in terms of his power set. Because I think that really within these, these science fiction issues, you start to get a sense of just how powerful uh swamp thing is you know if he's at the point where he's he's creating life and he can you know form new bodies out of out of alien plant life i mean he essentially uh has become uh, a god and so i think that that's kind of like an interesting place uh that 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 more really takes it near the end um and i definitely i would have liked him to stick on a little longer and explore that uh a little further um, like eventually, um, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller do uh, in their run, but yeah, I think that I think that Moore lays some really interesting groundwork, kind of in these these final two uh, few issues before he returns back to Earth. What did you think overall of the final issue? Because for me, I read it and I was like okay, of course we have to have the Swamp Thing and Abby reunion and then Chester and Liz go off and do their own thing. And you kind of see that coming together prior to the last issue with Chester and Liz when he stops by and Abby's not home. And you can 
see that there's going to be something that happens with the two of them. And while that isn't fully fleshed out by the end of Moore's run, you know where that's heading when that issue ends. And it kind of felt like he wanted to tie everything up into a nice little bow. But I'm with you on the fact that I would have loved to see him explore some other aspects a little more. Yeah, it, it, he definitely he brings it full circle in terms of something returning back to uh, the swamp. But I think the, the issue is even called the return of good gumbo. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's definitely a, a full circle issue. Um, it doesn't it doesn't really uh, plant too many seeds for like the next writer uh, to take over. Um, so I think it's like a, I think it's a nice issue um, in terms of you know getting to swamp things uh, emotional capabilities after this you know entire journey uh, of going across you know uh, America to hell and back and then to space. Uh, I do I do kind of like appreciate the the grounded end, but um, yeah I think that there's definitely room for him to to explore some more of of what uh of what of what swamp thing went through because i mean the idea i i guess is that you want the character to be changed significantly in some way and i feel like swamp thing does change but the final issue kind of just like puts him back where he started uh it doesn't really you know position him uh you know, in, in a place of great change, even though we've seen the the whole emotional arc, uh, it doesn't really, you know, set up for the, the next writer to kind of go in a, a vastly uh, different direction. Yeah, I do want to backtrack briefly, if you don't mind, and talk a little more about the Louisiana issues in particular, because that also takes a turn that I wasn't really expecting you end up on this film set, basically, and there's this house that is sort of taking over people's minds, and there's obviously this big thread of racism in these issues in particular, and, you know, me as a white person, I can't speak to these things as well as someone who has experience them yeah that issue um is probably one of my favorites in his run i like the idea that and i, I think it's interesting for for more as like a uh, a white british writer to kind of tackle uh american racism mm-hmm. um from this this outside perspective but i do think it's really interesting how uh american culture like we consume and like make entertainment out of the suffering of black people and so i feel like that is kind of like at the at the root of the issue um and so i think that that it it plays out in a really interesting way um which is not to say that i think that that i think that it could have been handled with more uh depth by a black writer because i i do i do think that that more is 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 limited just by default uh, of his own of his own nature, but um, I think that he raises some really interesting some really interesting points uh, in that issue, um, and, and really that that whole American Gothic arc, those those early issues of it, where he's kind of exploring American horrors 
through traditional horror archetypes like ghosts and zombies and werewolves and vampires. Um, you know, that, that to me is kind of like what, what I really fell in love with in terms of the series of tackling social issues, uh, through horror. Um, so yeah, I think that that, that whole plantation house, uh, issue is just, uh, it's a really interesting thing. And I also appreciate the fact that it doesn't like Swamp Thing doesn't like solve racism. You know, right, it, it right. more clearly, you know, understands that this is something that's systemic and like bigger than, you know, anything that even, even this, this creature on the verge of Godhood can, can even contend with. And I think that that's, you know, kind of the, the interesting through line through all of those early American Gothic issues is that Swamp Thing will interrupt or disrupt uh, an event that's tied to, you know, uh, the horrors of America. But he, he can't change it on a, on a foundational level because it's just it's entrenched into America too deeply. And so I, I really appreciate, uh, that aspect of it. And I think that that more really, uh, really shows that he has a clear, a pretty clear understanding of like certain issues that face America from, from an outsider's perspective. And I think that, you know, because he's coming from the UK that he really doesn't have to have the same, uh, I guess, guilt for tackling it. You also look back at this time period too within the comic book industry and there really wasn't a ton of diversity if any really one could argue in you know the mid 80s sure you have some writers of color and black writers in particular but not a lot. So the fact that Alan Moore chose to take this on and did it in what I saw as an inoffensive way. You know, it's not like he was trying to fix everything as a white man who wasn't even from America. He just knew that this was something that was commonplace. And especially for the time period when the plantation house would have been built and how things were handled back then, which was not well at all. And it almost had this night of the living dead feel to it as well yeah it, it definitely did and i think that's that's interesting too because it's like it's coming off of the kind of manifestation of our kind of like first american horror movie that's just like really grounded in like societal evils um that romero was was exploring with night of the living dead and i think that you know the the thing about the both of those issues, the Southern Change and Strange Fruit, is that you know these were were written in the '80s, and yet I feel like, you know, even even today, I don't think very rarely have we seen uh, writers of mainstream comic books go there, like take their characters to places like that and confront racism in that way that Moore did. And so I think it's you know it's kind of interesting because. While in some ways, you know, comic books have become more progressive, um, I don't think that they necessarily always succeed uh, in terms of handling these these deep rooted evils. Um, because I think that there's always this kind of 
the central idea with comic books that it's about good defeating evil. And I feel like more understood that it's not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, something that can be defeated. It can be, uh, confronted and talked about and brought into the open, but it's not, uh, an open closed story. Um, and I, I definitely think that that's something that contemporary comic book writers can kind of learn from in terms of using these characters to explore, uh, you know, present day issues, like even, even beyond, even beyond race, you know, in terms of, of, of sexism and, and, and homophobia, I think that there's a lot of room, uh, for writers to tackle these issues with superhero characters, um, and understanding that it's not just like, a uh, a two issue battle that, that gets concluded in the end. Right. That is certainly very well put. So thank you for that. I would not have spoken so eloquently about those issues, but they were one of those things that just stands out to you in a run like this, especially for it being a Swamp Thing comic. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it being set in the the American South to, um, you know, allows for that to, to kind of be tackled. I, I think that, you know, for me... I always did think that it was strange that there is uh, there's a there's a lack of of, of black people uh, in the saga of Swamp Thing, uh, especially for it being set in Louisiana. Um, it's um, it, it's an all white you know central cast, and I think you know black people show up in the background occasionally. Um, so like even though you know more was definitely aware of these issues and tackled them, I still think that there's still a lack of awareness that came with either, you know, either in terms of writing or art or just publication uh, about the people that exist in these spaces. Um, and so, you know, being set in, in the American South and not having, you know, any, any black people in a, in a central cast. Uh, I think that's one of the, the, I think that's one of the, the central elements of this run that doesn't age particularly well. That's something that has obviously not necessarily been fixed completely with more recent iterations of Swamp Thing, but in the show, it wasn't an all-white cast. A lot of them were still white, yes, but it really let you know that, hey, you know, there aren't just white people in Louisiana. Yeah, and that, that's one of the things that I really liked about the show. And like like Matt Cable is black in the show, and... Mm -hmm. Madam Xanadu. And so, yeah, I thought that that was, I thought that those were, were nice changes. Um, and I, I really, I really appreciated the show too. I, I, I was very devastated, uh, when DC universe canceled it because I, I do feel like it, like you said earlier, it takes a lot of the groundwork that more laid, um, and really, uh, updated it, brought it into, uh, the 21st century. And I feel like that was something that was, was really needed, uh, for the character. Yeah, and I know there's so much to unpack with Moore's run that we're probably not going to get to everything, but one issue in particular that I enjoyed the reference from was the issue where they're basically at the Winchester house, but it's under a different family name, and yeah. I don't recall the issue number. I should have taken notes while I was reading this, but I got so engrossed in it, I just kept going issue after issue for as many as I could handle in one sitting. And as soon as I saw 
you know, the image of the house, I was like, oh, someone knows about the Winchester house, which, again, with Alan Moore not being from the United States, he certainly seemed to have a good enough grasp on all of these different kinds of things that could come into play. Yeah, like definitely like the concerns about uh, gun violence and yeah. like its prevalence in, in America. Um, and again, like similar to what he did with uh, Southern Change and Strange Fruit, like it's not something that, you know, gets wrapped up in the end. Like it's still out there and exists, but it's just kind of like bringing awareness to it. But um, yeah, that's that's an equally powerful issue that I feel like really speaks to the heart uh, of an American problem. And so, yeah, I really, I really like uh, the way that more uh, use these, use these characters to, to tackle American issues. Um, that one was, uh, was ghost dance was the, the issue title. Okay. That was number 45. Yeah. I thought I remembered it being, you know, sort of roughly, just past the midway point in Moore's run. And it was another one where you have Constantine in it, and it felt very much like something suspicious was going on. And having been to the Winchester house in particular, when you see things like the door that goes to nowhere, it's like, that is a thing that actually exists in that house. So it was just fun for me to kind of get to play in that world again for even just one issue. Yeah, I, and, and like to be honest, I would have loved like if if more had just continued on like exploring, you know, urban urban legends in America and just like these kind of strange parts of American history yeah. with Swamp Thing. Uh, because really, like like that's my favorite aspect of of this book. Like I just think that there's so much strange and dark history in America, and so like using this character. Uh, you know, not even like he's not even central in all of these American Gothic issues. Like some of them are not even from his perspective. He kind of shows up near the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just kind of like using him as like a vehicle to explore uh, some of these other stories is just like such an interesting concept that I definitely would have loved to see stretch a little further. Absolutely. Well, Richard, is there anything else you want to bring up in particular with Alan Moore's run? Like I said, I know there's a lot here, but we could probably talk for, you know, eight hours if we went issue by issue on this one. <laughs> I did want to uh, bring up the the Floronic Man uh, again really quickly. Okay. Because I think that that is, it's such an interesting character too. Jason Woodrow as kind of this like antithesis of Swamp Thing who who wants this connection to the green but but can't handle it in part because of his his human basis you know he he is not entirely removed from uh his human biology like Swamp Thing is and that's something that you know reoccurs uh in later issues this kind of tension ongoing tension between Woodrow and Swamp Thing and you know it's actually one of the the central arcs of the current uh Justice League dark run that picks up a lot of the threads from this um but I also thought that Woodrow was used really interestingly uh in the DC Universe show as well of this kind of like fascination with with what Swamp Thing is and kind of like his efforts to uh, become, you know, similar to that in some way. 
Um, so yeah, I, just, I think he's a really fascinating character, uh, in part because, you know, Swamp Thing is one of those characters who doesn't really have, uh, like a, a, a central rogues gallery, um, like so many comic book characters, you know, there's, there's arcane. Um, and then there's the pharaonic man. And those are really two, the two main reoccurring ones. Um, but mostly, you know, he's each encounter is, is kind of something new or some, uh, familiar, like, uh, occult archetype. So I, I think that, you know, both arcane and the pharaonic man are just like really interesting in terms of their ability to be used, uh, repeatedly throughout the run but like not to the point where they become so overly familiar that we know exactly what to expect from them they're kind of these these villains that i think keep us on our toes and then when they do show up it's kind of like oh no like things are really going down like when arcane shows up again like you know that things are going to be bad absolutely and i love that you bring up the lack of a rogues gallery because i would say of the DC characters, you have Batman and the Flash who have a ton of rogues, you know, and it makes me wonder now, what would happen if we had like a Swamp Thing and Poison Ivy crossover kind of thing going on, you know, <laughs> and because yeah. Poison Ivy is seen as a villain, I feel like she wouldn't necessarily be sort of this arch enemy to Swamp Thing. Instead, I think he would be the most likely of all of the quote-unquote heroes to understand a character like Poison Ivy because he understands the importance of nature, plants, and all of these things. And it kind of makes you wonder if Swamp Thing could be the one to sort of flip Poison Ivy to the other side. Yeah, and she's actually, she's referenced the green and a connection to the green and some recent, uh, issues and there are even like some theories that poison ivy could become the next avatar of the green so i really hope that that's something that dc comics continues to play with because i I think that there's like a lot of elements left to explore with swamp thing like he doesn't have a an ongoing book currently um but he he plays a lead role in the the justice league dark book that i talked about but i just i feel like that mythology is so fascinating um and i think that you know, really, he has an opportunity to really kind of break up some of the the traditional roles that we see certain uh, DC characters inhabit, like Poison Ivy. Uh, so yeah, I just I really hope that I hope for one that he gets a, uh, an ongoing series again soon. Um, but yeah, I just I also hope that writers continue to. Uh, expand on on the mythology here because i it really it's it's one of my favorites uh in all of, in all of dc comics like the swamp thing mythology is one of my favorites i really want to dive into the character more now because i don't want to say that the show was the first time i had watched or read anything to do with the character but it was sort of a deeper dive than i had done on anything swamp thing related until reading these issues. And I know Scott Snyder has a run and there are a bunch of creators who I really enjoy who have had runs on Swamp Thing. But this is sort of the one where you're like, okay, you know, this is where we get a lot of these connections, whether it's Swamp Thing and Constantine or even Batman sort of showing this respect for Swamp Thing. And I really did enjoy this overall because it's not that 
it was so different when the highs were high and the lows were low. It's like, it was good the entire time. I just had personal preferences. For sure. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. Like the entire run is just so great, but there are definitely things that I, I gravitated towards more and just like being such a horror fan. Like I definitely appreciated the horror stuff uh, the most, but yeah, it's just, it's such a cool run. And like, there's so many other like cool runs that followed like uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller did some interesting things. And Brian K Vaughn did a run uh, on Swamp Thing's daughter, Tefe, who becomes the new avatar of the green. Um, and then uh, the new 52 uh, Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire's run is absolutely fantastic. I think it's, it's the best uh, following Moore's. So yeah, there's definitely like a lot of cool, Swamp Thing stuff that that followed what Moore did and, you know, takes what he did and and follows through with it. Absolutely. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me to discuss this one. It was a fantastic discussion, and I'm glad you suggested that I finally get it together and read this one. I'm sure you will be back on for future episodes. Is there anything you want to plug real quick before we wrap up here? Um, I'll just say that uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Richard L. Newby. Uh, always happy to talk about comics, movies, uh, all this cool uh, pop culture stuff. And uh, yeah, I definitely I'd love to come back on uh, in the future. I'm always reading some some big comic book run. So there's definitely uh, a lot of options for stuff that we could talk about in the future. Perfect. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.